You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 21. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the CSB Podcast. So glad you can join us today. There is so much to talk about as far as today's episode, but let me start with the basics. Today's episode features none other than Robin Merkel Walsh. She is from Talk Tools, which is, you all probably know this company. They're a company that both provides education, CEUs, Um, as far as oral placement therapy, as well as products in the form of tools that therapists can use in oral placement therapy. Uh, Robin is well known in our field as a practitioner of what is now called oral placement therapy. And she has been a practicing speech pathologist for over 20 years now. And Robin works in a number of different capacities. She is a part-time private practice owner. She works full-time in the public schools. And of course, Robin is an employee of the Talk Tools uh, company, and she lectures throughout the world on oral placement therapy. And it's my pleasure to welcome her to the show today. Um, I'm going to go on for a little bit in this introduction before we do get to the conversation. And I'm going to do this for what I think are very obvious reasons. But if you would like to just, uh, if you prefer to just get to the interview and skip the section, please go right ahead. You can skip to right around to the four minute mark. But please, if you're driving in your car, don't take your eyes off the road. (laughs) You'll have to either swiftly hit pause on your phone or uh, listen through the intro and just suffer through it. Um, Okay, so let me do a little bit of a backup and talk about the genesis of this episode because I think it's kind of important. Um, I, so I was I was approached by the Talk Tools uh, company about a sort of counterbalance to the previous episode that I did on non-speech oral motor exercises. So the, the couple of things I want to get uh, settled right off the bat. Number one, that this episode is not a debate. I, I'm not interested in having debates. I'm not interested in who can score more points. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to, first and foremost, if I accomplished nothing else in this episode, it was to understand or to better understand where oral placement therapy is coming from. The trick, I think, in talking about a difficult subject like oral motor therapy or oral placement therapy, whatever you want to call it, is like any other subject, any other difficult subject, is just to do it in a respectful but direct manner. And looking back on this episode, I think I asked the questions that any of us would ask about the subject. The problem that is sure to come up after this episode is uploaded, is that my questions will no doubt provoke strong responses and at least a portion of listeners from both sides on the issue. To be more specific, it's safe to say that your individual opinion regarding the merit of my questions and the follow-up or sometimes lack thereof will probably depend on what side, if any, you stand on. So when I wonder out loud if a bite block protocol might in fact be a non-speech oral motor exercise, I do so with the intention of gaining knowledge and understanding. Nothing more and nothing less. So thank you for listening and keeping an open mind.
and I actually went to college at Montclair State, which was called college at the time, as a dance major. Um, movement was always in my blood. I grew up basically living in a dance, dancing school and performing and doing choreography and all of my whole life was movement. Um, and when I was in college, I had my Aunt Janine McGovern Lawler um, as a mentor and a role model. Uh, she was a speech therapist and actually working on campus in the parent infant program. And one day I got really sick with like bronchitis and a cold and she called me and she made me a care package and chicken soup and I went to pick it up and there she was doing feeding therapy. I saw her through the two-way mirror feeding a baby with Down syndrome and I basically went the next day and changed my major even though at the time I don't think I really knew what a speech pathologist was. It just looked incredible to me. Um, and as a college student, I had a really great advantage over the other students because my Aunt Janine was taking me to a lot of postgraduate CEU courses like conventions. And that's how I found out about Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson. Um, my aunt took me to the New Jersey Speech and Hearing Association convention. I went and I heard her speak on her um, therapy methods and oral motor therapy. And it really intrigued me. Um, and what happened was, as a graduate student, I created some lessons for one of my graduate clinics. And my professor, who happened to be um, a student doing her doctoral dissertation under Barbara Hodson, um, was not too pleased with my use of the therapy tools to help with L production. Um, but it really didn't deter me. I saw it um, as kind of mirroring what I used to do in my dance practice, where before we really learned um, a combination or coordination, we used to break everything down, we used to stretch, we used to put it together, um, and it really intrigued me. So what started to happen is I, I always loved pediatrics. I did my you know adult, my rehab hours, but right out of school, I went right into a public school program. And I started to notice I had all these articulation kids with R and S and L, and they really couldn't control the articulators with precision and accuracy. They needed something more. So I reached out to Sarah, who really didn't know me, um, and I wrote her an email and I said, listen, I'm, I'm creating a tongue thrust program here at my school and I'm using a lot of your tools and I'm incorporating a lot of your programs. And I, I wanted to know if maybe you were interested in seeing what I was doing and how I'm incorporating your work into the public school population. And Sarah looked at my work and she really loved it. And that's how I really got involved um, with oral motor and with what was then Innovative Therapist International is now Talk Tools. And, you know, back then in my mind, um, I was looking at a lot of myofunctional therapy and myofunctional work, which really was not debated at that time in the field. And I was seeing a lot of similarity to what Sarah was doing and the myofunctional therapy um, that was being done for tongue thrust disorders. And that's how my SMILE program was born. And it just really exploded after that and has continued, um, you know, since about 1998. This has been, um, you know, my area of interest working with uh, motor and muscle-based disorders in the pediatric population. So that's wow. my story. And I'm still in a school. So, you know, I've been there for 20 years. 
Uh I've been in private practice for 19 and I do my work with talk tools. So I'm pretty busy and I live, breathe and eat speech therapy. (laughs) So, wow. So is your school job full time as well? Yes. I'm in the school um, from 8.15 to 2.55. And then I'm very lucky because my private practice, if I had to, I could walk. It's literally a quarter of a mile away from my school. And I dart up, I get my coffee, my Dunkin' Donuts, and I dart up the hill and I come to my practice. Wow. So do do any of the kids that you see in the school come to you in the clinic after? Does that happen? No, that, that would be a conflict of interest. It's very interesting. Um, my practice for a long time was in Teaneck, New Jersey, which was about a 10 to 20, you know, minute drive, depending on the traffic. Mm -hmm. And after I had my son, I decided to move the practice closer to my home and my full-time job. But I set that rule. Sometimes parents will ask me in school and I explain why it's a conflict. But um, I'm in Bergen County, New Jersey, and we have a lot of programs for autism and a lot of special ed schools. And I'm very, very close to Manhattan. So there is a large... um, client base here that I really don't have to share with the school system I work with. That's, that's great. Um, okay. So the, I guess the, the big question of the night for me yes. is this, I, I think there's a lot of confusion and I read, uh, by the way, um, so I read, I have to, I'm going to link to the oral motor Institute for everyone to read. If that, everyone's not familiar with the website, um, can you explain real quick what the oral motor Institute is? Sure. Um, The Oral Motor Institute was founded by Pam Marshalla, and she's um, pretty much the godmother of oral motor therapy, and she's devoted her whole career to this topic. And um, Pam Marshalla and also Diane Barr um, really created the OMI when they saw this um, heavy debate coming in um, that uh, oral motor therapy was not effective for articulation and perhaps it shouldn't be used. And they really created the Oral Motor Institute to devote um, time and research and review of the literature to help um, other speech pathologists and clinicians really understand what the therapy is and what evidence base there is to support it. So um, right now, um, Pam makes this very public through her Facebook, and she shares with her fan base and her followers um, that she is suffering from leukemia. So I was very honored when Pam asked me to step up and take the um, active um, chair of the OMI. Um, And and there's a lot of great therapists on the OMI. Um, Diane Barr is still on it, Lori Overlin, Mm -hmm. Susan Evans Morris, Mm -hmm. um, Nancy Kaufman, Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson, Pat Taylor, a lot of the big names in feeding, oral motor, oral placement, and myofunctional therapy. So it's it's somewhat of a brain trust um, that we the, the main goal is to pr- produce um, monographs, which are various um, evidence-based practice studies and review of literature to really look at what's going on um, in the topic of oral motor. Mm-hmm. And and uh, prior so prior to tonight, I've uh, I've reviewed the the OMI website and I've been there before. And I here's the way I see it. I think that and this is a point well taken. I can't remember who's. I think it was Pam Marshall's, uh one of her monographs, this idea that oral motor exercise is a big umbrella term for a lot of things. And I think that there's just a whole, there's non-speech oral motor exercises, oral placement therapy, 
phonetic placement therapy, OME. There's a lot of terms out there, and I think there's a lot of confusion as to what's what. Right. Um, I was hoping you can go in and just sort of explain the way you see that. Sure. Well, non-speech oral motor exercises, and I wish there was an appropriate way to say this acronym. Is it a NOSOMI or a NOMSI, yeah. <laughs> or how would you say it? Because it, it, it is, of course, um, something large to say. So for the purpose of our, com- uh, our conversation, let's say NSOME, mm-hmm. um, to kind of shorten it. Um, they are, to me, they are exercises that are about um, non-speech movements. There are activities such as maybe wagging the tongue outside of the mouth or trying to touch one's own nose with the tongue tip. Non-speech oral motor exercises are not related to speech. Oral motor exercises, however, um, have been deemed appropriate for feeding therapy and are not really questioned um, within our field. It is accepted in our field that working on muscle endurance and strength are required to improve the oral phase of feeding. For example, practicing lip closure on a jiggler tool and then on a spoon or stimulating the lateral margins of the tongue to provoke tongue lateralization for mastication. Somehow when the term um, non-speech oral motor exercises was created, everything was then questioned, whether it was related to feeding or it was related to speech. As Diane Barr stated in her three-part series, and I think this is what you just mentioned on the Oromotor Institute, um, there is a large debate and there's really no common ground on what a non-speech oral motor exercise is. And there's confusion amongst professionals. And even though clinicians were hearing that oral motor did not work, somehow they were still practicing it. That's what Diane found in her research and her surveys. So that is a big goal of the OMI. How are we going to clarify that? So what Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson and Diane Barr did is they recognized we really needed to differentiate what therapists were actually doing versus what the perception of the researchers assumed we were doing. Mm -hmm. So they coined this term in 2010 of oral placement disorders and oral placement therapy because it's what it implies. It implies that only speech-like movements are practiced in oral placement therapy. So, for example, if a client has a very low jaw posture and poor lip closure and does not produce bilabial sounds, P, B, and M, a lip closure horn can be used to help elevate the jaw into a high posture, and then lip closure can be drilled repetitively with that horn. OPT is essentially the same type of therapy that is done in OT for fine motor. So, for example, why does an OT work on a pincer grasp for handwriting? What does picking up toothpicks have to do with holding a pen? The OT is breaking down an integrated fine motor skill into steps, and they are segmenting that into a sequence. And that's essentially what OPD does. Mm -hmm. We dissect the movements, and we work on those movements in increments while we simultaneously build up strength and endurance. So while it's true that speech does not require a lot of strength, just adequate strength, the problem is many of the clients that we work with do not even have this adequate strength that is needed for speech. For those clients, we're helping them to achieve adequate strength to enable them to use targeted movements over and over and again. So an example here would be the child who can't say the targeted sound or sounds on the single word level. Maybe they can say it there, but 
it breaks down on the conversational level because they don't have that muscle strength and endurance. We require numerous repetitions to assist in creating a new motor plan or a habit. Interestingly enough, many forms of traditional methods in speech pathology segment words and then pull them back together, such as backwards chaining. But somehow breaking down the underlying oral placement skills has been deemed somehow unacceptable in our field. Professionals and academics who argue that non-speech oral motor exercises, quote unquote, proven ineffective, are not talking about what we're doing. And sadly, they refuse to hear us lecture, watch us work, or conduct research with the types of children we are treating. Additionally, they're not basing their findings on clinical trials or prospective research, but are generally conducting secondary research and making conclusions from prior studies. And they also don't have large case samples, which is what they accuse us of. So to counterpoint, the Oral Motor Institute has also conducted secondary research and has found the opposite points in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of our clients are not neurotypical youngsters with phonological or developmental speech sound errors, so we're not treating them as such. If we could, we would use traditional methods with them. Unfortunately, though, you know, there are products still on the market that encourage imitation of non-speech movements that aren't related to speech. Mm -hmm. I presume they are targeting oral sensory awareness more so than provoking speech sounds. I personally do not use them, nor am I involved in creating those types of products because I'm really interested in speech-like movements. Okay, so one of the things you're talking about, the idea of breaking down and establishing uh, motor patterns. Right. Uh, you were talking about how an OT might do the same for any number of tasks. Right. And I can already hear professors in my mind saying that speech is different than those types of tasks. I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you would have to say about that. I, you know, I think that oral motor um, is perhaps the most finest of fine motor movement. It's And it's really interesting because... When you look at um, a lot of the discussions in occupational therapy, and as we know, OTs also learn about, uh, you know, learn a lot about sensory oral motor function um, and the fine motor movements of the mouth and more so how they're related to feeding. Um, I believe that, you know, while there is not that one-to-one correspondence between feeding and speech, we're talking about the same group of muscles that are being used. Mm -hmm. So I think when we look in, um, you know, the OT, uh, the OT world and how they're breaking down oral motor movements and segmenting them, um, I I think that's where, you know, in OPT and through the Oral Motor Institute, we base a lot of our foundations are because there is that argument that it's different But again, like I said, in traditional models, if that's the case, why are we breaking down, um, you know, some some researchers like Nancy Kaufman or that are really into apraxia and they're using this backwards chaining or successive approximations. Mm -hmm. They'll talk about the importance of not working on sounds in isolation for children with apraxia because they may build a negative habit from that. Mm. And um you know, we see the same thing. Why would we want to work on a movement in isolation and not immediately transition it or pair it? So I think that's where um, we get a lot of our basis from in looking at 
motor learning theory in addition to the way OTs perceive the fine motor um, movements of the mouth. Mm -hmm. Now, the other th the other thing was the you were talking about that many of the clients do have adequate strength, but maybe that strength might deteriorate as the phrase length gets longer, right? Right. So, I, and I and I hadn't uh, come across that uh, in the Oral Motor Institute or in uh, any of the writings I've I've read, you know, from folks like Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson. And I'm I'm just wondering, do you, I, to put it succinctly, I guess I've never considered the idea that it's a strength issue uh, when you're looking at like co-articulation when a, a kid's going from, I don't know, two words to like five. Um, right. Right. And so it, it, would you say that it is a strength issue in most of those cases then or for kids I with think there's uh, a lot of comorbidity of motor planning disorder and um, dystonia, dysarthria, low mm -hmm. tone. Um, a lot of the kids that we're seeing that have these issues, you know, where we know the, the definition of apraxia is an absence of, um, you know, muscle tone dysfunction. A lot of these kids that we're seeing have both. Um, Renee Roy Hill talks a lot about this in her apraxia class, and it's the, you know, the premises of um, research that we presented at ASHA this year about using tactile cueing techniques with apraxia. And what we're finding is um, we're seeing these kids using compensatory patterns that indicate issues with muscle strength and endurance. And we see that as fixing where, for example, um, a, a child might be able to say, you know, a consonant vowel or a CVC. And then as they're getting into a bisyllabic or um, a multisyllabic word or a short phrase, a symptom of this would be they're fixing in the jaw and they start clenching in the jaw because they don't have the co-articulation or the endurance to get through the co-articulation with the lips and the tongue and that dissociation. So that's where we're really seeing it. Um, and especially I know um, that, you know, you had mentioned you want to talk to me at some point about Down syndrome and autism and various diagnosis. I yeah. can get a little more into, each, you know, each specific diagnosis and how these oral placement disorders present in specific populations. Yeah, I would like to, to jump to that. Um, before we do, though, the, okay, so the third thing, and this is the the biggest question I think I had for tonight is that here's where I think the the gap between folks in the in the oral motor or oral placement camp and maybe some of the academics I think that the gap is is here or one of the big gaps and that is I think that there's confusion like so for instance if you were to take peanut butter and place mm -hmm. it on the alveolar ridge I think both sides both camps can agree that that's a a reasonable tool that you can use to help. Uh, cue a child to say the sound, right? But and that's that's really dating back to myofunctional therapy in the, in the ages of Dan Garliner was using you know sticky substances and peanut butter and jelly and marshmallow fluff to teach that you know famous put your tongue tip to the magic spot or the smile spot or the the happy spot or whatever the therapist is calling it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So the disconnect here is, is I think this. So you then take I don't know. So let's say. What is a, the the uh, the whistle that's used to facilitate F and V? Because I I had these uh, tools at one point. So like, it's like a a clover whistle. Is that it? Isn't yes, there... there's several there's several um, 
horns in the kit that facilitate closure, also protrusion and rounding. Um, and the lip closure horns are used as a prerequisite for F and V production. So here's where I think associate the lips from the jaw. The lips from the okay. So here's where I think the 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 confusion and maybe disagreement comes from. So in that protocol, when you're having the child blow that whistle, how quickly, and I get it might depend, but how quickly do you then have the child go on to produce an F in a syllable, word, whatever have you? Okay. So you know what? I think this comes down to, um, you know, what's the theoretical framework of oral placement therapy and where are we, you know, getting this idea from? And, and a lot of people ask that, how long are you going to use the tools? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, traditional placement cues are based on more traditional models of therapy and rely on the concept that an individual can copy that motor plan suggested by the therapist, such as, you know, you're talking about F and V. So place your top teeth on your bottom lip and let's push air through and make the sound. But therapists often struggle with a population of individuals who do not respond well to look at me and say what I say and those who require a more tactile kinesthetic approach. So to me, oral placement therapy is a modern extension of phonetic placement therapy developed by Van Riper in 1954. Um, The feedback model by Mizak in 1971, and it's based on Jung and Hawke's very common sequence of facilitated speech movement with the assistance of a therapy tool, and you mentioned you know, a lip closure horn like a flute, okay, that tactile kinesthetic facilitation technique. It could also be something like prompt therapy, which is a standardized system of facial cueing Mm -hmm. as that tactile cue. And then we want to facilitate the movement without the therapy tool or the tactile kinesthetic technique. And that's that, you know, idea or concept of cue fading, And then we want to immediately transition movement into speech with and without the tool when needed and, and, you know, really be able to do the sound without the tool. So the concept of using a tactile cue is far from new. Um, Pam Marshalla discusses this in her monograph on the OMI, where she outlines that since 1912, every decade has produced literature that speech-language pathologists were using various forms of quote-unquote tools to facilitate articulatory postures in therapy. Just like you just mentioned, you know, putting the peanut butter um, to the alveolar ridge, which I should mention in the myofunctional world is called the incisive papilla. When I went to um, Mm. speak on oral placement therapy for the IAOM, I was quickly corrected that the peanut butter would go on the incisive papilla, but that's okay. just food for thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in the fifties, you know, Van Riper set the stage for the use of phonetic placement therapy in which therapists were encouraged to use a tool to drill a placement skill and then fade out the tool in the nineties, Dworkin detailed hundreds of jaw, lip and tongue um, movement facilitation techniques for apraxia and dysarthria and discussed their use in the overall Uh, plan for remediation. And you know what, you know, I find funny, Jeff, back then there was no debate, really, you know, um, Mm -hmm. Van Riper and 14 other authors use 86 different objects or other types of objects to teach dissociation, direction, grading of speech movements and articulation um, therapy. 
But, you know, back then they were using toothpicks, wood, spoons, other household items, and this was deemed completely acceptable in the field. It seems to be when tools started being invented by, you know, Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson and Deborah Beckman and Arcs and, and you know, it there, there was somehow this idea that the tools were being invented to sell and therapy was being built around them. But what therapists were really doing is they were going to places like the dollar store or pulling things, um, you know, from, from party stores and finding things that worked and then, and they tried to start standardizing them so that we weren't using things that were unsafe in therapy per Mm se. Um, so, you know, the movement is really always directed with speech toward the end. And, And it really depends on the individual client how long that tool is going to need to be used. You know, if you're talking about a neurotypical population that may just have some, you know, uh, you know, undiagnosed low tone. Some kids are born with low tone. They're totally neurotypical. It impacts their speech. They can move through programs very quickly and we get the sound and we work on the sound. Our goal is always once the sound could be produced, you work on speech. You don't just keep using the tool for the sake of using the tool. You're there in the moment. And when that speech is there and that sound is articulated, you start using a more traditional method of therapy. So I guess uh, my next question is, do you find, okay, I'm guessing you've, you do find many instances where let's just, let's take the, uh, the jaw uh, stability issue. Uh, okay. From a couple of things. So you, there's a, the bite block hierarchy. Yes. Um, and so here, I guess the question, take the jaw, that, that program, do you find, is it common? And let's take a client with, I don't know, you can pick down syndrome, cerebral palsy. Okay. I'm sure you find in that type of hierarchy that you have to work X number of sessions before you ever address speech. Would that be correct? Well, it really depends on the um, the capability of the client that you're working with, because mm-hmm. um, as I teach in a lot of my classes, and I was just talking about this when I was lecturing last week, you know, something would be a non-speech oral motor exercise if it doesn't mimic or isn't a placement that's actually associated with speech production, where the bite blocks are paired with the different jaw levels um, for actual speech sounds. So for example, bite block level two is your highest jaw posture. It would be associated with P, B, M, W, S, Z, um, short E, like I or E. And absolutely, if I have a client who is verbal and can work on verbal imitation, I would work on the bite blocks for jaw stability and then in that same session, I'd be pairing it with words that are in a high jaw plane. Um, The articulation program that I created with Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson called Oral Placement to Speech, all of the word cards are organized by transition in the jaw, with easy words being no jaw transitions. That would be a word like beep. And then you would have one jaw transition in the word. So you might have a word like bam, where you're going um, from a higher jaw posture to a lower jaw posture, but you're only switching planes once. And then the difficult cards have two or more switches in the jaw heights. 
So that's why we feel um, it's very important to work on jaw stability so that it as a prerequisite for jaw grading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it sounds like it really depends on the client. I mean, you might have one client who's at a completely different level of stability, and then you might be working on one set of sounds, and you might, it is possible, I suppose, to have a client who is maybe starting from scratch, and yes. maybe within the first session, you're not even addressing speech because they're not at a level where they have hardly any jaw control at all. Would that be something that you run into? Um, a lot of my kids on the autism spectrum, the very young ones that are very involved with comorbid diagnosis of autism, sensory motor processing issues, possible apraxia, dysarthria, they would fall into that category. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a speech language pathologist, even if that child's nonverbal, I'm going to be incorporating some type of expressive output, whether I'm doing sign language, channeling the motor pathways for speech or I'm using a PEC system. So there's going to be some form of quote-unquote speech and language in that session. I'm never going to be doing the oral placement in complete isolation of speech. I may be even using prompt facial cues. For example, if I'm working on a high jaw plane and I want to work on manding or volitional intent, I'm going to try to get that M or that M for more during my session. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use a variety of treatment methods to try to provoke that and be really consistent and very structured, maybe working with something I know the child really wants or trying to elicit an E for E and some type of verbal approximation. I'm always going to pair that with a language target so that it's not completely separated. With something, yeah. Um, I want to I want to circle back to autism in a second, but before I do, I know that you are prompt trained as well, correct? Yes. And I wanted to ask you how prompt fits into oral placement therapy and the work that you and Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson do. I feel that prompt is also a tactile cue. Um, it's different than using a tool, but it is using kinesthetic proprioceptive information for um, individuals that again, cannot respond to look at me and say what I say. Mm -hmm. And I know the Prompt Institute has a very strong feeling on using non-speech oral motor exercises. But again, what we're talking about here is really an extension of Van Riper and being very goal-directed to speech. And um, I found Prompt has really enhanced my work as a therapist and more so even than just the facial cues or the actual touching that I'm doing with the individuals in a session, it really helped solidify for me everything that Sarah had taught me early in my career of looking at the foundation of tone and then phonatory control and the jaw, the lips, the tongue, and the motor sequencing. It's very interesting if you hear Sarah speak and you go and you take the first level of prompt, there's so many similarities in the concepts of stability, dissociation, and grading, that they're really parallel. Um, So to me, prompt is really another form of oral placement therapy because you're using different tactile cueing to trigger speech sounds. Yeah, it sounds like it. And the sense that I've always had is that when you look at both prompt and oral placement therapy, as done by, I think, uh, talk tools, it's you're both looking at the uh, 
the jaw, lips, tongue in the same hierarchical fashion. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I think both of you talk about, or both camps, I think, talk about planes of movement. Yes. Um, I think you were mentioning how a lot of kids say with autism, they're, st- they're just their normal posture. What's the term, I think, impromptu? Prom- in they call it attractor states, I think. Is that something? It's sort of like a. It's sort of like the default state that they tend to. So okay. I think you, I think you were telling me about how a lot of kids in the spectrum have a high uh, tense, I guess, yes. almost kind of posture, which yeah. I which I've seen a lot actually as well. Mm-hmm. And so I I know exactly what you're saying when you say that, um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know will know as, as well. So I wanted to kind of segue into that and wanted to ask you. What is the goal of oral placement therapy? What, uh, what are the objectives with kids on the autism spectrum? Sure. It's a great question. Um, I personally have worked with children on the spectrum for the past 20 years. The biggest problem I see is the assumption that children with autism are nonverbal simply because of the autism diagnosis when many of these children have comorbid sensory motor issues impacting feeding and speech. Um, In particular, dysarthria and childhood apraxia of speech are common, as well as myofunctional disorders um, are often present in this population. I'm often confused as to why therapists think they only need to treat language with children on the spectrum if multiple diagnoses are present. I have found that I need to treat these issues with language development concurrently in order to facilitate verbal language. Um, Problems with these children range from self-limited diets to oral stereotypies to pica to severe motor planning issues. And I really feel that tactile therapies, including oral placement therapy, um, Lori Overland's sensory motor approach to feeding, uh, Deborah Beckman's work, Diane Barr's work, um, prompt and sensory integration therapy that occupational therapists um, are often doing are very important to consider for this population. Um, In particular, one should not assume that food refusal is a behavior, nor should one assume that a child being nonverbal is purely cognitive in this population. I've had children come to me at seven years old with only reflexive vowels, and after using the three-part treatment approach to feeding oral placement and speech therapies, start using single words and Um, become much more verbal to communicate. And I think this is because oral placement therapy really addresses those sensory motor needs. And I find that the whole program is very organizing and very calming with this population. Um, What I teach in my autism class is that I generally use a verbal behavior model and I use a lot of ABA principles for reinforcement and gaining self-regulation and therapeutic rapport But again, I don't use it alone. I use it in conjunction with other therapies. Um, What I really hope to do is to challenge therapists to look beyond beyond the autism and figure out if there's comorbid muscle-based or motor-based weaknesses that exist. Do you find that in that population, you know, kids with autism spectrum, do you find strength or endurance to be an issue often? Uh, I mean, more so than, say, kids with Down syndrome? I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but I'm just No, I I, I wouldn't overgeneralize it. I think that um, the two populations look quite different in terms of a balance. If I had to say 
with Down syndrome, there is a higher instance of apraxia. I mean, I'm sorry, a higher instance of dysarthria where in autism, I see a higher correlation with apraxia. And you'll even find that in a lot of the autism, the parent groups, the chat rooms, the online organizations, it's amazing how many of the parents have children that are also have a dual diagnosis of autism. I'm thinking in particular of Lisa Gang's Cherub Foundation and how many of the parents in her group really have children with not only a childhood apraxia of speech, but with autism as well. Mm. Okay. But strength and endurance are definitely, um, you know, an issue in this population. I, I do work in an autism program in a school, and I work very closely with OT and PT. And there's just global sensory motor issues such as uh, rigidity in the whole body and uh, tensing of the muscles and some muscles are really tense and kind of being overused where other muscles are lax. And, you know, a lot of these kids are nonverbal. And when you look at their oral resting posture, they're either in this state that we were just talking about before where they're extremely tense and they have a high fixed jaw posture and they're not using any jaw grating. Or if they do have issues with muscle endurance and low tone, they also can have open mouth posture. Um, I'm seeing a lot of these kids, even with structural deficits, whether they be orthodontic or they're having um, tethered frenulums and, and all, all sorts of oral placement disorders that are not just limited to apraxia or muscle base, but a combination thereof. Both, yeah. I don't know what to, I guess, to make of. Why, or let me back up. Why do you think... I mean, this might be a bigger question, but then anyone can answer. But I suppose, why do you why do you think so many kids in the spectrum have that rigidity? Well, the sensory motor system is very interrelated, and you cannot separate the sensory motor system. And this is, I love the way um, when I wrote the feeding book with Lori, the example that Lori gives in the beginning of the book, and and this is all her from her class. She talks about you know, going to a movie theater and having popcorn. And if you put a piece of popcorn in your mouth and you're able to lateralize it to the chewing surface and you chew that popcorn and it's buttery and you're getting the smell and the taste and you co collect a bolus and you swallow it, you have this really positive experience. And the next time you go back to the movie theater, if you smell popcorn, you're going to want that popcorn. But if you're an individual with a sensory motor issue and that popcorn goes in your mouth and you can't lateralize it and it sits on your tongue and it starts to dissolve and you kind of get freaked out and you gag and you vomit, you're not going to really be too happy the next time you smell popcorn because that, mo that lack of motor ability impacts the sensory system and it's a continuous loop. So for children with autism that have a lot of sensory dysregulation, Many of them are over-responsive to stimuli. They could be in a room and hearing the very soft buzzing of a fluorescent light, or they could be disturbed by the sound of the child next to them at lunch chewing. And this gives them a lot of anxiety. And then there's overflow into the body, or they may have an 
under-responsive sensory system where they're seeking out a lot of information and they do not discriminate. That's why a lot of these kids with autism also have secondary pica because they're not discriminating an edible from a non-edible. And that starts to impact the motor system. So I think that the global diagnosis and having sensory integration dysfunction really um, spills over into the mouth and into what's happening with the oral sensory motor system. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like just circling back that you know, when you're looking at kids with, in the, on the autism spectrum that you're really trying to, there are a number of things going on with the oral placement therapy. There's this giving a lot of feedback, the sensory organizing, as, as well as the actual placement cues for motor production, motor speech production. Right. So with my kids on the spectrum, I'm very often working with the OTPT to start out with global sensory information from how they're seated to the type of lighting. Maybe we need some music in the background, working on the whole body, then working towards the mouth to get into those pre-feeding activities and then doing the oral placement. And of course, immediately followed by speech and language activities that are going to help with expressive language, really tying it all together. Mm -hmm. Um, I just have a couple of more follow-up questions, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you ever bring together oral placement therapy with just traditional methods of phonological intervention? How do those two fit in together or do they? Well, they do because we always teach in our classes, if the individual can respond to look at me and say what I say, we're going to work on that. So we're constantly, the nice thing about OPT, it is based on hierarchies. So when we're working with individuals, every session is therapeutic, but it's also assessment. So we're always going to go back each session and we're going to stimulate and try to do, hey, look at me and can you say this? And um, one of the things that really stands out to me is a transitional activity, for example, would be Renee Royhill's Apraxia program um, because she's really looked at tying together visual stimuli with the placement cues and fading out the placement and just using the visual. Mm -hmm. So for example, she has these apraxia bilabial shapes where a a yellow triangle is associated with the P phoneme and the blue square is the B is the M and then the red circle is the B. So she's pairing that with Here's a placement cue, but now look at the shape and the color and let's try to say the sound without that, you know, placement cue and move it into more traditional methods. So with a lot of my kids, as they start responding to look at me and say what I say, I start cue fading and using prompt facial cues instead of the actual therapy tools. And then I'm actually doing the same things that A lot of speech therapists are doing, I'm playing the fishing game, I'm using articulation cards, I'm using cycles. Um, In fact, what I see with a lot of my kids with um, motor planning issues is that in the beginning, they really have um, a lot of erratic errors. And as they start gaining um, that jaw stability and they start developing motor sequencing, they almost fall into more typical phonological errors such as gliding and cluster reduction and their errors become more 
consistent and predictable where I can do things like working on minimal pairs and inter and intrapersonal discrimination if they have the cognitive ability to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, I tend to get a lot of referrals that are very involved children that have more global diagnosis than just a neurotypical child with really severe articulation issues. Yeah. And that brings me, I guess, to, um, I suppose that oral placement therapy wouldn't, I don't say necessary, but it certainly wouldn't be used or needed a lot for your typical four-year-old kid with a phonological disorder or speech, right. just a, a really typical looking speech sound disorder, very predictable, very yes. textbook kind of error. Is it just the normal game plan or finding, right. or finding a template that fits a child? And if there's a struggle along the way and you need help, you know, getting that tongue retraction with tip elevation for an L and you need to use a tool to kind of probe it, you can do that, Mm -hmm. but you certainly don't have to use it for a long period of time. Um, I found when working, believe it or not, in the regular ed population, a lot of these children I was working with, I thought... Um, that they were going to have phonological issues. And you know what I found a lot of in the school was myofunctional issues. I had a lot of these kids with interdental and lateral lisps that really were not swallowing properly and they had open mouth breathing and a whole host of, you know, adenoid issues and allergies and airway obstruction. And that's a population that really did benefit from oral placement therapy strategies and myofunctional therapy because they too were not responding to or carrying over what I was doing with them in therapy because every time they chewed, swallowed, swallowed their own saliva, sat at their desk and did work, they had an open mouth posture and interdental tongue placement. And that's how I wrote the SMILE program. It really was with a regular ed neurotypical grammar school population. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, so I wanted to end by asking about research. Sure. And um, so one of the biggest, you know, the oral motor controversy, this is going on since somewhere in the mid 2000s, right? Yes. And the question that comes up again is, and we've, we're living truly in the age of EBP, evidence-based practice. Of course. And the question's, launch all the time is where's the evidence where's the evidence so my question is has i, I guess we you know two questions one is whose responsibility i guess i don't know if that's a good question i was i'm mostly like <laughs> whose responsibility would it be to quote unquote test the tools so the idea in other words is that you know you can have a theoretical framework for right uh, and, and a historical model to using or placement tools but i guess where the you know when the rubber hits the road you can isolate, say, the let's go back to the bite blocks or the horn hierarchy and ask the question, does this specific, specific hierarchy work right. uh, same, better, or worse uh, than uh, traditional, uh, we'll just say, quote unquote, traditional approaches to articulation? Right. So I'm just wondering, you know, has, is this something that, you know, folks in the OMI have talked about doing something more? you know, even, even more single subject designs, some, yes. some random yes. randomized control studies down in the future. I mean, have you guys talked to academics before about this? Oh, we definitely have, you know, and there, you know, your, your question is very loaded. Um, and you know, I do have a lot of information about it. Um, yeah. 
let me give a little background before I maybe answer it directly. And then, of course, I will answer your question directly. Sure. Um, because you're asking about evidence-based practice and who should do the studies. And, you know, that's always very difficult because if you do studies on your own products or your own techniques, that's looked down upon as well. So mm-hmm. how do we solve this problem? And I'll tell you that when I went to ASHA, um, I... I, I would I'll look it up for you and I'll I'll send you the actual course. But I went to this symposium of Barbara Hudson and a lot of different researchers in phonology, and they were talking about a lot of different methods. And one thing that stood out that Barbara Hudson said is even in the area of phonological processes, we haven't had a large sample study since the 1970s. And when Diane Barr did her monographs on the OMI. Um, she also looked at, wow, you know, in our field, 99% of us are clinicians and 1% of us are researchers. So we have an ongoing problem in the field of speech pathology in general that we don't have enough of us doing research. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that research is one form of evidence-based practice. No one study proves or disproves decades of text, journal articles, and client feedback. The ongoing question in the field is whether or not oral motor therapy is evidence-based. And evidence-based practice, according to ASHA, is the integration of the best research evidence with clinical expertise and patient values. I feel there's really a misconception that evidence-based practice is limited to double-blind studies when, in fact, evidence-based practice is very centered on valuing feedback from the individuals receiving the treatment and the clinical data collected in therapy. Not every method in the field of speech pathology has these large sample double-blind studies. For example, there's no proof actually that a mirror aids in articulation therapy, but after years of practicing therapists using it, it has become pretty standard practice. Um, And I, I guess sometimes what upsets me is when you know, a clinician or a researcher will come up with one study and say, this proves that another study isn't valuable. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any one study in our field has ever proven that oral motor, OPT, or myofunctional therapy is invalid or unethical. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all of us in OPT, believe me when I tell you, we long for research. But it's so complicated to get a doctoral level researcher to research the clinical outcomes Um, including the types of children we're working with. Unfortunately, the negativity surrounding the topic prevents us from getting the support we need in academia. Remember that most of us in OPT or in the OMI are actual working clinicians working with clients, students, and patients on a daily basis. Um, I do believe that what I was doing wasn't helping people. Um, I wouldn't have... Um, the clinical outcomes and the client feedback that I've had under, you know, over the years. Um, You know, I see results every day with all the children I work with. I've been taking data and graphing data for years. I've tried numerous times to get this data organized into research designs, but it's difficult when you're not a researcher and you do not have a researcher above you. For example, um, I did a year's worth of data with a child with Mobius syndrome, we had three children that we were following um, through talk tools with the support of the Mobius um, Foundation. And we did pre and post Goldman Fristo articulation tests. 
And when we went to submit all the clinical data to ASHA, it was rejected due to too many variables um, involved to conclude which part of the therapy actually helped the patient. So was it the bite block? Was it the horn? Was it the bubbles? You know, we tried to use um, a set program that was similar with each individual, Mm -hmm. but apparently we did not get it right. Um, to answer you more directly, we are working at Talk Tools every day to try to evolve with research. Um, we just presented two poster sessions at ASHA um, for 2014. One was by Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson, and it involved case studies of adults using OPT mm-hmm. in the rehabilitative setting. The other poster I presented with Renee Roy Hill, and we looked at using tactile cues with children who presented with apraxia. Um, I'm currently working with Malloy College to try to collaborate on a case study, and I am also um, just about done with looking at um, sensory motor dysfunction and autism. I'm writing a monograph through the OMI, and the uh, next one will be on tongue tie. The International Journal of Orofacial Myology continues to look at oral motor therapies and treatment outcomes. Um, In fact, in Denmark, oral placement therapy is recognized as specific and accepted treatment protocol um, by listed in their healthcare treatment guide. The Oral Motor Institute will, of course, continue its mission to provide evidence-based practice. And I feel that over time, as more studies, even if they are case studies, are published through ASHA and in, in, in small journals, um, it will gain you know, more respect and help us get the support of academia. Um, I personally call out to all researchers um, with an interest to please help support the clinical studies because where I can do the therapy, I really need that research expertise to make sure that the studies are designed properly. Um, I'm really excited. I was actually just uh, approached by a team at Seton Hall at the New Jersey Speech and Hearing Association, and they're looking at using oral placement techniques with the CP population and treatment outcomes. So I am going to become involved in that, and hopefully we'll get a good study. So it definitely is in the works, but again, um, I can tell you that I even applied to doctoral programs locally and I got accepted, you know, based on my transcripts and my work, but getting that professor to say, hey, Robin, sure, I'll study your oral placement therapy techniques just was not happening. So, you know, we need that brave person to be able to say, even if they think, I don't think that works, uh, you know, give it a shot and see how it goes for a, a larger uh, you know, double blind study. I'm all for it. It's yeah, set yeah. Up. You know, I think the conversation is kind of stuck, like in 2008. You know, and yeah. uh, I feel like okay, I, I still think that you know, again, there's just some, maybe some mixed signals here, but I, I feel like you know, let's jump in and start taking a look at specific protocols, and right. let's be open minded, and let's just you know, whatever we find is what we find. Let's just, exactly. But let's just do it and. um as you were talking, I was thinking about an article I can't remember some years ago. One of the one of the things that I heard or read was that, as a general rule, uh, professors don't or researchers don't necessarily like to 
go towards a study that might disprove something. They would rather go and do something that proves something. And and that's the thing. We're not trying to disprove anything. And I think that's the hugest misconception. We are not trying to replace the traditional model of therapy. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a different population. And you said it best before, you know, you have this you know, typical four-year-old who's going to respond beautifully to traditional therapy. I am all for that. Sarah's all for that. Lori's all for that. Diane Barr is all for that. The whole OMI is for that. Um, You know, we're talking about these kids that aren't responding. I mean, what do you do? Do I sit with my child with autism that's completely unintelligible and just keep drilling words over and over <laughs> again that they can't articulate? Yeah. I have to find something to do and something to help them and facilitate verbal um, approximations. And, you know, uh, I'm thinking about a little boy in school that I was actually writing his IEP today, and he's been with me since he's three. And, um, you know, he's going to be turning eight soon. We're going to be reevaluating him. And he's actually going to be transitioning off my caseload because here's a little boy that came in with autism at three years old, still on a bottle, unable to chew, only ate baby food, would gag and throw up um, even at the sight of different foods. He couldn't imitate any oral postures. He couldn't blow out the candles on his birthday cake. Um, everything was reflexive and vocalic. Um, he wouldn't eat food, but he would put anything that was not a food item, like a crayon, glue, pom-poms, dirt in his mouth and would try to eat it. And after working on that three-part treatment approach, he is speaking completely intelligible in sentences. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't think without that model of sensory oral motor approach to feeding and oral placement therapy that he would be as verbal as he is now. Maybe he'd be on an augmentative device because he had the receptive ability, but the therapy was so helpful for him. And again, not a one-to-one correspondence between speech and feeding, but they're overlapping systems. And by working on that you know, sensory motor dysregulation having to do with a self-limited diet and not being able to advance to straw drinking and chewing solids as that improved and evolved. And he started gaining phonatory control and he started then responding to prompt. It was amazing what I could do with him. And that's just one case out of, I guess it's probably thousands now, but I'm scared to count that many. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my age, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You know, it it makes me also think that this is something I've been thinking about since uh, we set up this whole interview process. I've always thought to myself, she wouldn't be doing this if it didn't if it didn't make sense for it if it didn't work. Um, of course not. I mean, and there's, so. there's multiple. My, my school just won program of the year from Najisha. Um, I have schools that consult with me from all over the state. I have. Clients that travel from Maine to come down and see me, um, and all of us. I mean, especially in Europe, we're invited to China, India, Denmark, uh, Germany, uh, Puerto Rico. The list goes on and on because kids are responding to this not only here but all over the world. And you know, I hate to say maybe I'll be famous when I'm dead, but I think that's what happened to you know Christopher Columbus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I I truly believe I I truly believe this is helping so many individuals. And again, 
I am not against the traditional model of therapy or I have great respect for Barbara Hudson. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things that I use uh, when I do independent evaluations a lot, uh, you know, school districts will hire me as an expert or, you know, secondary and, and different litigation courses is I love Gregory Loft's work on developmental norms and looking at how many developmental norms are out there and how therapists are really interpreting these norms the wrong way. Like, yeah. you know, children don't develop S till eight. That's not true. Or R till eight, right? of the population develop uh, S, S by eight. And, yeah. you know, I take it a step further and say, hey, we need to look at, is it a phonological process or is it secondary to a myofunctional disorder? And let's treat it as such. If we have stopping let's go with the traditional, you know, or phonological model. But if we have interdental tongue protrusion on a swallow, we need to remediate that. So, you know, I think it also is a step back, Jeff, into mm -hmm. assessment and being a good evaluator and knowing to differentiate the two. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's no one size fits all approach. It has to be eclectic. Yeah. And and just to uh, finish up that thought, you know, the question I had in my mind or the, the thought was that she's making, she's obviously making progress. So it's either the methods that she's using or it's something else and it's being ascribed to the methods. So I, I'm, I'd I would love to give you uh, the benefit of the doubt. And I want to just end by saying I am keeping an open mind. Thank you very so. much. I appreciate that. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and where can people reach you if they want to find uh, more about you? Um, I have uh, the Talk Tools website, which is www.talktools.com. Mm -hmm. I also have a website through my private practice, which is robinmerkelwalsh.com. And there's a lot about my school programming and how I'm using oral placement therapy and feeding therapy in the school population. And that's at the richfieldschools.com. And you could search me in the staff directory under Shaler Academy. So, um, and of course the oral motor Institute. Okay. Very good. So I'm going to link to all that on these show notes. Okay. Great. Um, and thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Uh, it was a pleasure. No, I think it was a great talk and I would love to have you back sometime. I'm sure there's going to be just tons of follow-up questions. So. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It would be, I would be happy to do it. That's great. Thanks so much, Robin. Okay. Have a great night. All Take right, care. Too. Bye. All right, here we are again at the end of another episode of the CSP Podcast. I'd like to first thank Robin for being a guest on the show. And I really did mean what I said at the end of our talk, that I am keeping an open mind. I still don't quite have everything figured out, and I still am uh, skeptical in some regards, but um, the door is not closed, uh, at least for myself. Now, I'm sure this, is gonna, this episode is going to get a lot of uh, interesting reactions, as I alluded to in the introduction. So I just ask that you all keep your comments uh, civil and respectful, both to Robin and myself. You can get a hold of me at Jeff at conversationsandspeech.com if you so wish to. I decided, I think, that I am going to post uh, on my blog section a, a bit of a longer reflection uh, on this episode and the specific points uh, to which I do, I agree with Robin and uh, again the points at which I'm still either confused or or skeptical. So look for that on the website uh, coming soon. 
I'd like to uh, close this episode by sending my sincere condolences to the family of Pam Arshala. I had heard uh, some the some bad news uh, about a week ago as I was editing this episode that uh, Pam Marshala had passed. So again, I just want to send my condolences uh, to her family, her colleagues, uh, friends, etc. I never had the the pleasure of meeting Pam, but uh, she has no doubt left an indelible mark on our profession. And so we'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.